You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, it's a great uh, delight to be with you again. I, I greatly enjoyed my time with you yesterday, and uh, I hope that we'll continue to enjoy each other this afternoon. One of the things which gives me a great deal of pleasure in life is reading signs. So, there was a sign in a shop in North Carlton where I lived advertising goat soap. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many dirty goats there are in Carlton that you need a shop which sells goat soap. Uh, I haven't seen many dirty goats around Carlton, but nor have I seen many clean ones. So it amazes me that the shop is still open. But another sign I saw just out there, actually, uh, on the back door, it said, please keep this door locked always. Needless to say, it wasn't locked at the time. But I thought, why have a door which is always locked? Why not have a wall? (laughs) And I also uh, happen to live near the uh, cemetery, which is handy. Uh, (laughs) And there's a sign there which advertises exclusive graves. Well, that presumably implies that some graves aren't exclusive and you have to share them with people you don't know, but you can buy an exclusive grave and have it all to yourself, which is a very happy thought. But then it has limited release. Well, what does that mean? Half an hour and you're out? Oh, they don't make graves like like they used to. (laughs) Well, you can see how I spend my time reading signs and enjoying them. The one I love most is on my medicine bottle. It says, take one tablet four times a day. Well, that's a good idea. The difficulty is retrieving the tablet once you've taken it for the first time so you can take it for the second time. They get a bit soggy, you see, and then you have to get it back again for the third time, and then miracle of miracles back for the fourth time. It's pretty soggy by the end of that, I can tell you. Or, if you want another one, it was a kind of relaxation medicine you took to kind of calm down. The bottom it had, keep out of the reach of children. I thought, that's very good advice. If you want to relax, keep out of the reach of children. (laughs) That was a bit slow, wasn't it? (laughs) I'm not recommending that, by the way, but uh, some of you will understand why I say it. Well, we're thinking of, of the theme of written for us receiving God's words in the Bible. And the uh, topics I'm taking in these four talks are receiving God's words, which we looked at yesterday, today written for his people, and tomorrow by his spirit and about his son. So receiving God's words written for his people by his spirit about his son. Yesterday, we talked about receiving God's words in the Bible We talked on delighting in the Lord's instructions and meditating on the Lord's instruction day and night. And we'll talk more about meditating today. We talked about Jesus who, as we discover in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, was kept alive by the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus himself lived that way in his earthly life. He was sustained every day by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I was saying, if that was good enough for Jesus, 
it's good enough for us as well. We need to be sustained by the word of God as Jesus was. And we also thought about the different ways in which people might respond to the word of God. We did a little summary of the Old Testament uh, in terms of responding to God's words. Uh, remember in Genesis 3, God said, you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said. So there's the first sin, the first contradiction of God's word. We found in Exodus 20 and 24, these words, God spoke all these words, giving the Ten Commandments, and then the people replied, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. What a wonderful response that was to the word of God. And yet, in 2 Chronicles 36, a little summary of the first part of the Old Testament, they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. When the people returned from their exile in Babylon, they made a promise to God, a solemn covenant with God, to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses. And near the, final, near the end of the Old Testament is the instruction, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant. So God's people are those who hear, who listen, who pay attention to God's words. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but listening carefully is a difficult and challenging task. It's easy to listen superficially to what someone says, isn't it? Listening to someone, as you're doing so politely now, I might say I'm so impressed. Not one person has fought well. Only one person has fallen asleep, and that's really encouraging. But listening is hard work. It's it's less hard work to speak than it is to listen. See. But we are called to listen to each other, to understand what each other is saying, and we're most of all called to listen to God. It's sadly true of some marriages that husbands and wives give up listening to each other. And it's sadly true in some friendships that friends stop listening to each other. They're so busy talking that they have no energy to listen to each other. And that ends friendships. You know what it is to talk to somebody and you know they're not listening, they're just planning the next thing they're going to say. And it's actually easier to talk to God than it is to listen to God. Easier to sing songs than it is to listen to a Bible reading in church and to listen to a Bible talk or a sermon. Easier to pray to God than to listen to God and receive his words. But receiving God's words is at the very center of our Christian lives. As Martin Luther put it so wittily, faith is an acoustic affair, that is, a listening affair. For faith comes by hearing, as Paul says in Romans 10, and hearing from the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. What does it mean to believe if it does not mean to believe what God has said, to trust God's promises, to embrace his commands, to receive his gift? Well, today we're focusing on the fact that we're receiving God's words to his people. Now, this is a really important theme. Uh, as you may know, in the, in the West, we are individualists. The individual reigns supreme. And uh, that's getting stronger and stronger in our society. Uh, I heard uh, one Cambridge scientist say, if we don't play God, who will? And the idea is that we have to play God and in our society you have to be your own God. And in lots of our schools we're training children to be thoroughly independent. And the rewarded child is the child who breaks the conventions of their family and of society and finds a new direction for themselves, a new identity. 
a new purpose, a new set of values. So the fact that God's words are written to his people is a great shock to people in the West. But it's also a great shock to those many other, most other cultures, in fact, in the world in which it's not individualism which reigns supreme, it is the family which reigns supreme. And what a shock to discover that the main uh, unit which God deals with is God's people as a group of people, not as individuals and not as members of their own family, but as members of God's family. There's a shocking new identity for all believers in Jesus Christ. For God's people are one in time and one in history. Let's do a little bit of Bible study of that and I'll explain what I mean. The way into it in thinking from the Bible is to ask the question, who are Abraham's children? For it was Abraham to whom the promise was made. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So it is through Abraham and his descendants that God's blessing will come, that is, to the family of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, and also to all the nations, because God will bless all the nations through Abraham. So in the Old Testament, Abraham's physical descendants, who believed the promise, and people from other nations who joined them, became the one people of God. So uh, it's Abraham's descendants, not all of them, because not all of them believed the promise. But Abraham's physical descendants, the Jews, but also people from other nations who joined them. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 23, don't despise an Edomite because he is your brother. Don't despise an Egyptian because you are a resident alien in his land. The children born to them in the third generation may enter the Lord's assembly. So the Lord's assembly is made up of Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, but Edomites and uh, Egyptians may join as long as, uh, through a few generations, they show their sincerity of their desire to belong to the Lord's people. Or think of the example of Rahab. Do you remember Rahab was the prostitute in the promised land who gave shelter to the spies when they came through to spy out the land? And uh, she joins God's people, so much so, uh, you can read about her in Joshua 2, that we discover in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, she is one of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. She's thoroughly embraced into God's people. So in the Old Testament, who are God's people? The answer is Abraham's descendants who believe the promise and people from other nations who believe that same promise. When we get to the New Testament, the answer is a different one. Jesus' ministry focused on the Jews, but also included the occasional Gentile. And I, I, I'm struck by that moment when Jesus is commissioning the, the uh, 12 to go out, and he says to them uh, in Matthew 10:5, "Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles." Don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus' main focus of his ministry and of his disciples in his earthly life was on Jews. But we also find in Matthew 15 that there is this uh, pesky Canaanite woman who kept crying out, have mercy on me, my daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Uh, the disciples said, send her away. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's pretty tough, isn't it? But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. Yeah, I think this is a bit rude. He answered, isn't it, it isn't right to take the children's bed and throw it to the dogs. 
And quick-wittedly, she replied, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. Isn't that wonderful? She snuck in, didn't she, by her persistence. But see how the, uh, though Jesus' ministry included some Gentiles, when Jesus ends his earthly ministry and he's leaving it to his disciples or apostles, of course, he expands it to all nations, as we know so well from the end of Matthew's gospel. A dramatic change. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's a massive change in the Bible. If you have a Bible you can underline, I suggest you underline all nations. That's a, a really big change in the Bible. Uh, baptizing him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always to the ends of the age. Not only that, but it was then to revealed to Paul the Apostle that the Gentiles were, in the words of Ephesians 3.6, co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise through the gospel. So the Gentiles weren't kind of just uh, added into the Jews. They became co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise. Or Ephesians 2.18, through Christ we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So, and this is a big part of Paul's ministry, Gentiles don't need to become Jews to become Christians. That's a wonderful moment, isn't it? Of the expansion, the planned expansion of God's grace to include all nations. And you and I are very thankful that that happened. So Paul has this extraordinary statement uh, at the end of Galatians 3, uh, which I wouldn't have written this way at all, but he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or descendants heirs according to promise. And I, would have, I think I would have written, well, if, if you're Abraham's seed, then you could be, you could belong to Christ. But notice that when, which Paul puts it, if you belong to Christ, then automatically you are descendant of Abraham. So Gentiles are equally descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father as well. The moment you become a Christian, you inherit a family history, which is the Old Testament. Abraham is our father. Sarah is our mother. The prophets are our prophets. These books are our books. The Psalms are our Psalms. The Proverbs are our Proverbs. The promises are our promises. This is our family history. And this is achieved by the crisis of Jesus' death and resurrection. I put some references here to uh, Matthew's Gospel, where the point is uh, put uh, very graphically and powerfully. Uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 21, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard owner. And listen to this parable as a summary of the Old and New Testament. It summarizes what I've just been saying. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. 
Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. That's the story of the Old Testament and the story of the coming of Jesus. But Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done. It's wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Jews, and given to a people producing its fruit. It's a terrifying story. Jesus is describing exactly what happened in the Old Testament. God sent his messengers and his people killed them. Finally, he sent his son and his people killed him. So the kingdom is taken away and given to those who produce fruit. Or even more strikingly, I think, in uh, Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 to the end. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. Well, how will they do that? By asking for the death of Jesus. Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I am sending you prophets, sages and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. It's terrifying, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying this is the generation of Jews who have their last chance. This is the generation to whom God has sent his son. They murdered his prophets. What will they do to his son? Well, the answer Peter gives in Acts chapter 2, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified Lord and Messiah. Now this picture of one people of God is portrayed so beautifully in the first few verses of Ephesians. Blessed, I'll put some interpreting words on the way through so you get the point. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us Jews with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the plays of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved One. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purchased, purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ both things in heaven and things on earth before him. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. That, so that we had already put our hope in Christ, that is, we Jews who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, you Gentiles also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you Gentiles also believed, you were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. He's the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So there is one people of God, Jews and then Gentiles. And if you want to follow the same theme, you can look at the Adam-Christ contrast in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 5. Now, again and again, I meet somebody who's become a Christian, a young person who's become a Christian, usually, and they have two questions for me. Do I have to evangelize other people? And do I have to belong to a church? Do I have to evangelize other people? And do I have to belong to a church? My reply is always, you misunderstand the gospel if you think the gospel is about God and you as an individual. The gospel is sometimes described that way in the New Testament. Galatians 2.20, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But more often it's described as God creating a people for himself. The Lord Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus died for the church. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep, that is the group of my sheep, know me. And I have other sheep, that is Gentile sheep, whom I must gather as well. Whereas we, in the West anyway, tend to personalize the good shepherd as my good shepherd. No, he's actually our good shepherd. Do you see the point? And God's great plan was not that you would be saved, though God did plan that. God's great plan is that he will have a people, his people, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of his Holy Spirit. And your great privilege is to be called by God to be included in God's people. The great unit God deals with is not individuals, but his church, made up of people from a variety of families and people for whom being a child of God is at the heart of their true identity. Being part of the family of God, God's family, joint heirs with Christ, with the Holy Spirit testifying to our spirit that we're children of God, causing us to cry, Abba, Father. That's what God is doing in the Bible. There is a Bible, I believe, which you, you, can, uh, you can buy and it has your own name in it. It has everything else crossed out and your name put in it. Or people say, you know, read John 3.16 and cross out God so loved the world and put your own name there. God so loved Julie that he gave his only son. Or God so loved Jim. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God so loved the world. And it's our self-centeredness in the West, or in some cultures, our family-centeredness, which blinds us to this blindingly obvious reality which the Bible talks about so clearly. And because there is one people of God, we have one cumulative verbal revelation of God. It comes in three stages. In the Old Testament, it includes the, what is called in Hebrew the Torah or the teaching, often referred to as the law in the Old Testament, the teaching of Moses, the law of Moses. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think the description of law is an altogether happy one because the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, include lots of salvation history, don't they? They include the creation. They include the exit the deliverance from Egypt. They include all the miracles of God caring for his people. So don't think of the law as just laws. The law is a literary term, and it includes legalism, that is, laws, the Ten Commandments, for example, but much more as well. 
So the three parts of the Old Testament are what we call the Torah, the teaching or the law, the prophets, and the writings, which are books like Psalms and Proverbs and uh, Job and Ecclesiastes and so on. Uh, they're often called the writings, or as Jesus calls them in uh, uh, Luke 24, the Psalms, because the biggest book in the writing, the writings, that is what is in the Old Testament and isn't law or prophets, the biggest book is the book of Psalms. So Jesus says, uh, for example, in Luke 24:44, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there are the three bits of the Old Testament. Get that? Then we have Jesus' personal revelation, which he gave when he was on earth. It's recorded in the Gospels, but... Uh, written down, that they were written down in their present form after Jesus' death and, I suspect, after many other New Testament books. So the Gospels give us a perspective on Jesus' teaching from after his death and resurrection. So we found this uh, in Mark chapter 7, which we looked at yesterday, uh, Mark wrote his gospel for Gentile uh, readers. So we read that the Pharisees and some of the scribes who'd come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. And then, so Mark's telling the story, but then he puts in something to explain this later on for Gentile readers, you see. Non-Jews, the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing and so on. So... The Gospels are uh, looking back to the time when Jesus was alive, recording what he did and what he taught, but from a later perspective. Another example of that uh, is in uh, John chapter 2, when uh, Jesus has cleansed the temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. The Jews said, this temple has taken 46 years to build. Will you raise it in three days? He was speaking about the temple of his body. Then John puts in the comment, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. So the Gospels are written after Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, about Jesus' personal revelation. And then there is the third section, which is Jesus' revelation through his apostles after his death, resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit, and that is all the books from Acts to Revelation. And as we'll see uh, tomorrow, this revelation was promised by Jesus in his promises about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 14 to 16. So then, the people of God, New Testament people of God, including ourselves, receive the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It's our book because it's a book which promised the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a book, a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Uh, passage which I'm sure you'll remember. I don't want you to be unaware that our ancestors were all under the cloud, passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. Our ancestors, well, Paul's addressing Gentiles as well as Jews, you see. These are our ancestors, he said. They all drank the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. They were struck down in the wilderness. Then verse 6, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. So why were these things written down? Why is the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy written down? The people who were there at the time didn't need it, but the next generation did, and the generations after that And we need it. So when God caused the Old Testament to be written, he had us in mind as well as God's people in the Old Testament. Isn't that extraordinary? 
That's why in Hebrews 3.7, when the writer is quoting Psalm 95, he says, he introduces the, the, the quotation from Psalm 95, as the Holy Spirit says, not as the Holy Spirit said, but as the Holy Spirit says. That is, the Holy Spirit is still speaking the Old Testament to us Christian believers today. It's our book. And the Bible is primarily addressed to God's people, not to individuals. So we need to hear it and receive it as God's people. How do we do this? Well, uh, we realize, we have to realize that on most occasions when you see the word you in the Bible, it's addressed to more than one person. So when Paul's writing his letters, he doesn't write to individuals, he writes to the church and then says, you should do this, you must remember this, you should think about this and so on. And indeed, most of the Bible books are addressed to the people of God. And even when Paul writes letters to individuals like Philemon and Timothy and Titus, he always adds a greeting to the church. So it's a book to an individual to be read aloud to the church. And maturity is not so much about individual maturity, it's about the maturity of the church. And the sins Jesus is most worried about, as we discover from Revelation 2 and 3, are the sins of the church, not the sins of individuals. It's not that individual sins don't matter, they do. We have to be putting our sins to death every day and walking in righteousness every day. We have to be repenting of our sins every day as individuals. But God's main concern is the sins of a church, not of individuals. Read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Imagine, for example, you were studying 1 John, which includes the firm command, love one another. Well, if you hear that as an individual, you'll think, well, what I have to do is love my fellow believers. But if you hear it as it is, an instruction to the church, it's not enough for you to think, well, I have to love my fellow believers. No, the command will only be obeyed when all the members of the church love their fellow believers. Do you see that? So if you're, you think, well, I'm, that's a, I'm okay, I'm loving my fellow believers, that's not enough. You have to be praying and exhorting your fellow believers to say, we all have to do this. We have to change the culture of our church so that we become a church in which everyone loves everyone. Why do we have to do that? Because if a church is an unloving church, that will discourage the Christians who are loving each other, won't it? They'll grow discouraged because nobody else is doing it. And young Christians who join the church will think that an unloving church is the normal kind of church to have. And new Christians joining a church will think this is what churches are like. It's like uh, you can have a prayerless church, can't you? A prayer in which there are some people who are great prayer warriors, but most people don't bother praying. Well, what a message that sends newcomers. What a message that sends young people. Prayer is of secondary importance. Oh, we've got a few real keeny beanie prayer warriors. We'll just let them run a prayer meeting on their own, but we'll get on with a prayerless life. So you never see people praying with each other after the service. And prayers are only perfunctory in church and in church meetings. See, God is most concerned about the sins of a church more than he is about the sins of individuals. So we as a church have to meditate on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's turn to that wonderful passage we had as our Reading Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, of course, is a collection of Moses' sermons to God's people. It's not instructions to individuals. It's a group of sermons to God's people. Let's pick it up at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 and verse 4. Uh, really important words in the Old Testament. Uh, words, of course, quoted by the Lord Jesus. 
the first great command. Listen, Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? How are we going to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our strength? Answer, verse 6, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Isn't that a wonderful expression? At the very center of your being. Then what do you do with them? Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your city gates. That is, may they shape your family and your community. The city gates was where justice was administered and things were decided for the city, you see. So here is these precious words in our hearts, on our lips, in our conversations, and in our private and public life. That's what biblical meditation is. It is not just privately hearing the words of God, it's receiving them as a church and talking about them with each other, discussing what they mean, how they might be implemented, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a church. I find uh, many Christians who, who should know better engaging in selective meditation, that is. <laughs> it's rather like when you give somebody a box of chocolates, which is a, an admirable practice, I might say, to be highly commended. Not actually mentioned in the Bible, but I'm sure Paul had it in mind uh, on some occasions. And what people do with the box is choose the bits, ones they like and leave the other ones. So you you choose the, if me, you choose the dark chocolate ones and leave the other. If you've got no teeth, like me, you take the soft ones and let somebody else lose their teeth on the nuts, you see. Well, lots of people, even sincere Christians, get in the habit of treating the Bible that way and going for the bits they like and ignoring the bits they don't or going for the bits which are easy to understand and ignoring the bits which are hard to understand. Well, Jesus said, don't live by bread alone, but by every, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And perhaps the, word, the, mouth, the words from the mouth of God you need to hear are the ones which are hard to understand and take a lot of thought and meditation and discussion, thinking how to put them into practice. They may be ones that your family would ignore or our culture would ignore. Meditate on them, dear sisters and brothers. Individual meditation, well, that happens, I hope, when we read the Bible and meditate on it. Read a passage slowly. Write it out. Write down some ideas you have about the passage. Write down some questions. What's the most important thing in this passage? What's happening in this Bible story? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for our church? Is there a shock here? Is there something I might misunderstand? What don't I like? Those are great kind of questions to ask as you go deeply into the words of scripture. And we talked a little about this yesterday, uh, so I won't go, go on about it today. But I, I encourage you not just to read the Bible, but to meditate on it. In the words of Psalm 1, uh, happy is the person who delights in the instruction of God and meditates on it day and night. Corporate meditation, that is, uh, what happens when uh, the Bible is read in church and when someone preaches the Bible? The answer is, this is the one moment in the week in which God is addressing his people. It's a very important moment. Please don't think that individual Bible study can replace that. 
No, here is God having his word to his people, addressing his people by the power of his spirit. And then there is mutual meditation. Mutual meditation is when we share what we have learned with others according to their needs. I'm always struck by uh, Paul's words in Thessalonians. He's, he's writing about uh, what's going to happen to those who've died in, died in Christ. He says, the Lord himself, this is 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we'll be always with the Lord. Then he doesn't say, believe this. What he says is, encourage each other with these words. So you receive the words, what do you do with them? you then speak them to your fellow believers. He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5.10. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. I have a friend who has a yacht. I mean a big yacht, not just one you have in the bath. So he belongs to a yacht club and he belongs to a church. He said to me, the funny thing is, when I go to the yacht club, all we talk about is yachts. When I go to church, we never talk about Christianity after the service. We talk about everything else except what it is to be a Christian. Isn't that bizarre? And mutual meditation means making ourselves accountable to others. So in... Uh, I quoted this yesterday, but you're going to get it again. It's good for you, like Brussels sprouts and other unpleasant foods, which my mother used to make me eat. Not that I'm resentful, you understand. I'm, I'm thankful, of course, for her loving attention and care. Uh, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you, notice this, I'm not saying watch out that the, there is not inside you, but in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Well, do you know that's true of your church? Is there an evil, unbelieving heart in anyone? You should know about that and be doing something about it, shouldn't you? Watch out so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. You need others to exhort you. According to Hebrews, how long can you last without exhortation from somebody else? The answer is 24 hours. Encourage one another daily so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Now, I think this is sadly lacking in Australian churches. We find it very hard to inquire of each other about our Christian life. We find it very hard to rebuke or to correct each other because we value friendship so highly. We make an idol of friendships and we think the last thing I want to do is lose a friend. And the risk is if I do exhort my brother or sister, I might lose a friend. But if your brother or sister replies in a godly way, you will have gained a friend, won't you? And you, of course, need to be open to the same uh, encouragement and exhortation from other believers. It has to go both ways. The Christian life is too difficult to be lived on our own. And can I say to any of you who are fighting a particular sin and you're losing the battle, what you need to do is tell somebody else about it, a trustworthy person, and ask them to pray for you and to hold you accountable. You won't, you won't fight it on your own. God's provided brothers and sisters, members of the church, to encourage us and keep us in God's grace.
same, the uh, same theme comes in uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Or as we saw yesterday in Hebrews 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now what I've often done uh, in talking on this subject is to ask people to put up their hands uh, if they have been exhorted or encouraged or even rebuked recently and ask them to put up their hands if they've done it. I'm not going to do that now, don't worry, it's okay, it's okay. okay. But I must say when I ask the question, the answer is usually about 5%. And I think to myself, what a poor church this is with only 5% of the believers caring enough to check on whether their brothers and sisters are receiving God's words or not. Individual meditation, corporate meditation, and mutual meditation. Lord our God, may the word, the message of Christ dwell in us richly. As we take it to heart as individuals, as we receive it as a community, a church, and as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. May your word bear your fruit in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.